Welcome to the No Referees Podcast, where we have unpenalized conversations with sports personalities on industry news, their grind, the game, and much more. Please check us out on our social media pages at No Referees Pod for up-to-date info on the show. No rules, no texts, no whistles. This is No Referees Podcast. Welcome back to the No Referees Podcast. I'm your host, Everest Akajobi. Joined today on the line with this is world-renowned coach, speaker, and author. He's a founder and performance coach of the Stronger Team, the man that has the exact same smile in every picture I've seen. You can find him at <laughs> you can find him at Alan Stein Jr. on everywhere on social media. He is Elon's finest, the man that rides and grinds himself, Mr. Alan Stein. What up, brother? Hey, Everest, I've got that exact same smile on my face right now. <laughs> that smile is priceless, brother. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> How you doing these days? I'm doing fantastic, man. It's so nice to connect with you. Where are you at right now in America? Uh, I'm actually at home, uh, which is uh, about 20 minutes north of Washington, D.C. I live in a suburb called Gaithersburg, Maryland. Okay, I spent some time out there. I used to intern at uh, Georgetown uh, with uh, Mike Hill and uh, Augie Morelli back in the days. So I used to live in uh, Silver Spring. So I know that stomping grounds pretty well. Absolutely, yeah. Augie and Mike are great guys, man. That must have been a wonderful experience for you. Yeah, it was, man. It was. Before we get into our podcast and some, run down some of the long list of stuff you've done, some of the players you worked with, you know, recently we had the passing of Kobe Bryant, somebody you know very, very well. As I was driving into the studio today here in Chicago, I saw a random bank with a marquee sign that was giving some shout outs to Kobe and his family. You know, what's some of the most fondest memories you have and some stories you have with uh, Kobe? You know, well, I do find it um, an incredibly positive thing that everybody's doing the best to turn something that's so tragic and so sudden into a positive and really, you know, celebrating his life and his daughter's life. And, and certainly you're able to see what type of an impact he had, not just on basketball, but just on the world in general uh, when something like this happens. And, and like you said, it's, it's far exceeding what happens on the court and in sport. And, and there's been folks that, that he probably didn't even know he had an impact on. Um, you know, celebrating his life now with the retelling of stories and talking a lot about the mama mentality. So uh, I think that's, you know, it, it's a shame sometimes that it takes a tragedy in order to bring those things to life. But I do think the word you used, uh, celebration, is a very appropriate one. I, I had a chance to meet him um, well over 10 years ago uh, when I worked his, his skills academy for Nike. Uh, but I'll never forget, you know, some of the impactful lessons that he taught me. And, one of the things that's made the last couple of weeks interesting for me is I began every single keynote that I give telling the story of the first time I met him and the lesson that I learned. And of course, you know, with his sudden passing on that Sunday, I had three keynotes to give that week, uh, including the Monday after. So less than 24 hours after his passing was announced, uh, I was supposed to be on stage with the group. And that is the first story that I always tell I had to try to find a, a thoughtful and very respectful way to tee that story up instead of just getting into it. And thankfully, it went well. The audiences were uh, appreciative and welcoming of it. And I'm going to continue to tell the story and, and the lessons I learned from him because I think it's the best way that I can pay uh, tribute to his legacy and you know, for what a, what a profound impact he had on me. And anytime I can forward to others, you know, I, I take great pride in doing that. 
I've heard you tell that story many times too, and uh, in your keynotes, and never get bored with the basics is is the thing that you always mention. You know, what are some yes. of those things that you use, and some of the stories you tell that you use in your own personal life would never get bored with the basics. Yeah, that's, and I tell you what, that which is interesting because as obvious as that may sound, you know, don't get bored with the basics and always master the fundamentals. I think sometimes uh, people simply gloss over that. Um, and, and I know that we happen to live in a society that's, that's always telling us we should be on the search for something new and shiny and sexy and flashy. Uh, and anytime we do that, we get away from the basics and the fundamentals. And, uh, but the fundamentals and the basics, I mean, they apply to the area of life. I mean, the, the fundamentals of what it takes to be a you know, polished and captivating are things that I work on every single day. You know, what it takes to be good in any area. I mean, one of the things I do when I work with businesses and run workshops is I get them to establish, you know, what are their basics? You know, if I'm, if I'm working with folks that are in um, sales, you know, what are the basics of sales? You know, what the most common basic is the ability to listen and be a good active listener. That in order for you to sell anything, whether it's a product or a service, you have to be a really good listener. So you have to practice the skill of listening the same way a guy like Kobe would practice footwork. Um, you know, and, and the same could be said for any area of business. You know, whether you're a, an executive or a manager or a director, uh, whether you're in customer service or in charge of customer experience, whatever it is that you do, uh, even parenting, you know, you have to figure out what are the basic building blocks to be good at that. And then you have to work on those things every single day, the same way great players work on their shooting and footwork. How did Alan Stein become the man we know him today? You know, talk about some of the early experiences you had growing up in the Stein household. You know, talk about some of those things. Uh, sports have always been a, a really important part of my life. And I, I fell in love with the game of basketball at probably four or five years old. And I'm so thankful to hear four decades later, it's still a major pillar in my life. Um, but I didn't just do basketball. I, I did a wide variety of sports and activities and was always a very active kid, was always looking just to, expel some physical energy and despite doing a variety of different sports and, and even things like skateboarding and BMX biking and martial arts, you know, some unconventional activities, basketball was always my favorite by far. And I think one of the things that I really gravitated towards in the game of basketball was the fact that it's one of the few sports, team sports that is, that you can work on by yourself, but then you can use what you worked on to make other people better when you get with your team. You need a teammate or somebody else to either, you know, throw the ball or catch the ball or, you know, um, whatever it may be. Whereas basketball, you can actually work on, you know, ball handling and, and shooting in particular without anybody else. And I like the autonomy and individualness of being able to do those things on my own in my front yard. As my parents had a goal put up in our driveway and then be able to go and use those skills when I was, was playing with others. So uh, my entire life has always revolved around sport and around basketball. And as I got older, I started to realize that, you know, what I was learning and doing on the court uh, was only one component of what the game could teach me. And that basketball was really uh, an amazing platform to learn things like accountability and responsibility and work ethic and the ability to be coachable and uh, all of those different things, which I've been able to then apply to every single area of my life. So uh, that's why I'm such a huge advocate for, for children to, to play as many different sports as they can 
and to stay involved in sport for as long as they can because I know they can teach some amazing life lessons. You staying involved with uh, sports. I see that you're still heavily involved with Elon basketball, your alma mater. I think recently you posted uh, a video of the court in the arena uh, over at Elon saying, I think it was the the best mid-major facilities in the country. Talk about what that program means to you today and, you know, how that shaped you as a man you are today as well. My formative years at Elon were were amazing. I had a wonderful experience there. I was was very thankful to play basketball and and certainly had some ups and downs um, that now I can look back on and and realize that I can learn from both of those different instances. But uh, Coach Mike Schrage, who just recently took over the Elon program last year, is a good friend and is doing an amazing job implementing very high standards and amazing culture there. And, And I just want to do anything I can to give back and support because uh, that program was so good to me. And yeah, their new arena is second to none. Uh, I certainly recommend anyone that has an opportunity to, to visit there and check it out, and they certainly should. Um, they spared no expense in making sure that they provided a, a elite level, uh, not just arena, but I mean, the coaching offices, the, the team room, the locker room, the weight room is all second to none. And certainly um, if anyone's considering playing at a mid-major level school, I don't think you'll find any finer than, than Elon. Well, some uh, cool stories you had, how you trained when you were the player Elon to how you trained some of the, the players that we know of today. Like, What's some similar or some stuff that you may have not have done or would have done back then? You know, it was interesting. When, so when I, I was at Elon 94 to 98, so this was really um, before there was the conventional basketball performance training that we know of today. In fact, uh, at that time, in the mid to late 90s, less than a third of NBA teams even had a strength and conditioning consultant. So um, a lot of what I was doing when I was training myself and even training some of my teammates back then, um, you know, was coming from some rather antiquated resources as I look back on it now. I mean, <laughs> you, you figure even, I mean, 94 to 98, that's even really pre the big internet boom. I mean, right. we certainly had internet and there were some things that you could find but it's not like the internet is today. I mean, I don't think people realize, especially the younger generation, that when the, the internet first came out, I mean, there wasn't the, the plethora of information that there is now. That if you were looking for training information, there might only be one or two websites back then that had training information, and you had no way to discern whether or not it was good. I right. mean, whether it was quality information. Whereas today, I'm sure if you do a Google search for basketball performance training, I mean, you'll get thousands and thousands of websites and resources and documents and books and so forth. So uh, a lot of it, um, I had to use my own common sense. And, and I'm thankfully, I've always had pretty decent common sense where if something looked like it was dangerous, it probably was, and therefore I wouldn't do it. Um, and, and I was also very thankful to, um, I, I always, especially in the strength portion, you know, I was a big believer in doing things the right way. So I always made sure that I had impeccable form with everything that I was doing. Uh, I never tried to lift more weight than my form could handle. Uh, so uh, and that kind of stemmed from just the way I was brought up and the way I was taught, that if you're going to do something, you do it right, and that small details make a big difference. Um, so and I knew that just playing basketball. Like, if you're going to practice a move, well, make sure your footwork and your mechanics are perfect. You know, don't worry about how fast you go or – or how many times you do it, because if you're not going to do it correctly, then all you're going to do is get good at making bad habits. And thankfully, I took that mindset uh, into the weight room as well, 
and, and made sure that my form was, was good with all of the different lifts and movements. So I had the, the raw materials and the foundation to start, you know, putting together a, a program, but it is amazing how much that, how far that, that's come in the last 20 years. And, and even, I mean, I've kind of been out of the performance game for the last three years as mm-hmm. I've been pursuing corporate speaking, and I've still got some friends that are, that are in the game, and it's amazing as I look at the stuff they're doing now, just in the last three years, mm-hmm. um, all of the different advancements, the techniques and movements mm-hmm. and, and approaches, it's it's really exciting. Like a, a lot of the data point collection and, you know, those kind of things. That's some of the stuff that I've learned over the years that have changed dramatically as well. Absolutely. Well said. Yeah. Analytics is playing a huge part of it, but I, I just think more and more, you know, that it's the industry itself is improving. So you have uh, more free thinkers entering and, and being able to challenge old conventional thought processes and, and making things, you know, it's not necessarily new because I do believe that the old fundamentals still work, but it's taking a new, fresh approach, and it's, it's definitely a more holistic approach. You know, that's why there's there's fewer people that say strength and conditioning coach now. More people use the moniker performance, performance. coach because mm-hmm. strength and conditioning are really only two aspects of what that person does. Right. They're responsible for dozens of physical attributes and mental attributes, so it, it's almost as if just strength and just conditioning uh, doesn't speak the full picture. So yeah, I think the holistic approach and integrating not just what you do in the weight room or on the court, but how important rest and recovery is and how important nutrition is and sleep, you know, all of that stuff really wasn't talked about very much when, when I was coming up in the nineties, this, this is stuff that there's been great advancement and there's great research on why it's so important. Yeah, I echo that sentiment, too. When somebody comes to me like, you know, this is Everest, my strength and conditioning coach, I always correct them and say performance coach because I do the nutrition piece. I assist in rehab. I, I do uh, sleep study stuff with our athletes. So I definitely echo that sentiment, and I appreciate you saying that as well. Absolutely, yeah. You do much more than just strength and or conditioning. Talk about your time at DeMatha and Montrose uh, briefly. Um I didn't know that there was a such thing as a quote-unquote Nike certified school. Can you guys get some insight on what a Nike certified school is? They were one of Nike's uh, elite schools, elite schools. That, okay. that, that, that Nike would, would uh, sponsor in the same capacity that, that they sponsor, you know, a Duke or a, a oh, Kentucky. Okay. Okay. Um, so both Montrose and, and DeMatha, uh, you know, basically received the same type of gear and the same, mm. same type of stuff that those colleges received, which... Uh, at the high school level, you know, was was kind of a big deal, especially to the players. But yeah, my my time at both of those schools uh, were were incredibly influential and impactful to me. I had an opportunity to work for and learn from uh, two great coaches. Uh, both certainly had some similarities in the way they ran their programs, but also had some stark differences in the way they ran their programs. And it was really a great learning experience for me to to see both. Uh, you know, when I was at Montrose, uh, I worked for Stu Vetter, um, who at the time was 30 years older than I was. So, you know, um, we had more of like a father son type of relationship. Whereas when I went to DeMatha, coach Jones is only a couple of years older than I am. Uh, so it was more of like a, a brother to brother or a peer relationship. And both guys taught me a tremendous amount on how to build culture, uh, how to, how to create effective practice plans and practice the stuff that you actually need in games, you know, on how to build cohesion um, I mean, it was, yeah, both were just absolutely incredible experiences for me as a coach. And then, of course, 
you know, I'm, I was at both schools. I'm working with elite level athletes, kids that would all go on to play Division One basketball and or end up in the NBA. Uh, so my my lab, if you will, I was able to work with, you know, just incredibly elite athletes, which which certainly made that a lot of fun for me. Was the experience you had at Elon and doing the training yourself, training some of your teammates, was that some of your motivation to get into training elite athletes? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I I think. Looking back on it, I absolutely believe that when someone's deciding to train, they should figure out, you know, what level is, is best for them? What level is best suited for their personality? You know, do you like working with children? Do you like working with middle school or high school or college or pro? I do think society tends to think that if you work with more elite level athletes, then that means you're better as a coach and that most people make the inference that, you know, NBA coaches are better than college coaches. College coaches are better than high school coaches. High school coaches are better than youth coaches. And that's simply not true. I mean, without question, uh, the NBA and college have some of the best coaches to ever do it. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But just because someone works in college doesn't mean they're better than a high school coach or, or any, anything down the line. I mean, I've met some amazing youth coaches that are absolutely brilliant at what they do. And they choose to stay at the youth level because that's where they feel they're best suited and where they can make the biggest difference. You know, a perfect example of that, as I just mentioned, Mike Jones at Damasa. I mean, Mike Jones would be a valuable asset on the bench of any college program or any NBA organization. He is a basketball genius. He is amazing at working with players. He's great with player development. He's an exceptional leader. He's a, an effective communicator. But he chooses to stay at the high school level uh, because that's where he feels he's best suited and can make the biggest impact. So um, when I was younger, though, uh, of course, I had that kind of misinformed mindset that I just mentioned. And I thought that in order for me to be the best at what I do, then I need to try to work with the best athletes possible, which, mm -hmm. of course, would be in the NBA in college. But uh, looking back on it, my sweet spot was definitely youth in high school. That's where I think I could make the biggest difference. And, and certainly, I think that's what I actually enjoyed the most. The mindset that you mentioned a second ago, that's a uh, it's a big buzzword that is going around nowadays. Players mindsets. That's how they separate from each other. Give me some uh, examples of some guys you've worked with in the past that have just that unparalleled mindset and or, or leadership skills. Well, I, I think if we're going to talk mindset, then we do. I know we started the program talking about uh, Kobe Bryant. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think most of his peers would agree that, that his mindset was unparalleled. That, that, and that's, I mean, that's really where that, that moniker, the Mamba mentality comes from. I mean, that's basically describing his mindset and his approach. And, you know, I guess prior to, to Kobe, uh, Michael Jordan had a very similar mindset. And, and it's, I think you can see this with any really high performers, you know, whether you're talking about somebody like uh, Tom Brady um, or you're even talking about somebody like Beyonce, you know, folks that are in the upper 1% of their craft they have almost a relentless, obsessive mindset with the details, with mastering the fundamentals, with getting better every single day. Um, and while these folks are incredibly confident and they've earned the right to be confident through demonstrated performance and, and millions of hours of practice, they're also very open to being coached and they're very open to people that can help them get better. Um, you know, I, I know Tiger Woods is making a resurgence now, but if you look back 20 years, you know, Tiger was one of the most dominant athletes in the history of the world in any sport, and he always had a coach. He always had someone that could help him make slight tweaks to his his swing or to his footwork or stance or to whatever it was that he could get better. 
He never thought that he had all the answers. He was always looking for ways to improve. And, and I think that's one of the most important parts with mindset is you have to be willing to put in the work. You can't get bored with the basics, but you have to constantly be on a quest for self-improvement. And many times that means hiring a coach or an outsider that can help you do that. Working on the basics and mindset, I got a chance to work with the San Antonio Spurs for two years. And I know you mentioned them in your book, and I'll get to that later on. Um, so that part of your book that you talked about, Pop, you know, really was personal for me. I got a chance to see Tim Duncan work on his craft every day. He would come in the gym, shoot on the, shoot on the gun, and shoot the same 15-foot bank shot a thousand times. So when he got into the game, it was just like it was nothing for him. So I just thought you know, that was just some, some – his mindset was like – I'm going to do this same little drill every day for however long it takes me to get it done. So when it comes game time, it's just like pop a shot. Yeah. And and I tell you with, with the Spurs, I mean, I I didn't have a chance to spend quality time with them like you did, but that's one of the things that that has made the Spurs and made Greg Popovich and Ken Duncan for sure. So iconic is that they, that's their mindset they have when they practice, that they don't think anything is beneath them, that they know that, working on those fundamentals every day is going to pay dividends. Um, you know, I just recently watched a documentary called The Art of Coaching with Nick Saban and Bill Belichick, and it was a very similar approach. I would imagine you could have thrown Pop in there and he could have been the third leg to that school and they could have had the same conversation, which is we have to do this stuff every day. You know, the, the great players I've been around, they, they work to master one move first. And then once they have that move down, whatever that move may be, and they usually work to have some type of counter to that move. So, you know, if I have a killer crossover going from my right to my left, eventually someone's going to stop me from doing that. So now I have to be able to have a counter move that if they do stop me from going to my left, I can come right back to the right. And then once they have that down, then they look to add another move, you know, so that the smart players don't start by trying to have 10 different go-to moves. They start by having one, and once they've mastered that as close to perfection as possible, then they add a counter to it, and then they add another move, you know. And, and that's why, you know, when you look at a guy like Kobe, I mean, certainly he had a full arsenal uh, of moves from attacking the basket to, you know, a step-back jump shot. So he didn't add all of those at once. Those were pieced together over a very long career. Um, and it's the same thing really with, with any player. You know, I was just watching uh, some highlights about a week ago with Kyrie Irving, and I mean, Kyrie is clearly one of the best ball handlers in the league. I mean, he has that ball on a string, uh, and he's always been an incredibly well-versed uh, and well-rounded offensive player. But he's added so many different moves and wrinkles to his game now, even than what he had at Duke or had when he was playing uh, at St. Patrick's in high school. I mean, he was, he was one of the best of the best at both of those places, but now he's added even more moves to his game, and it's a sequential process. So I, I love hearing that story about Ken Duncan and, you know, working on those basics and then continuing to level up from there. Yo, you ain't living your life right. Pick up your device right now. Well, if you're driving, stay focused on the road. And hit that subscribe, follow, semicolon, period, whatever you got to ensure that every week your eardrums is buzzing with our new episodes, all right? I'm subscribed. Yo, you subscribe? All right, we good. Let's get back to the show.
there's a couple of players that I know you've worked with personally that I'm gonna touch on that you have a really good relationship with. One of them is actually one of was one of my favorite players when you played in college, and I'll get to him in a second. But one story in your book that you talked about was a journey of Markel Fultz. And you mentioned Coach Jones a second ago, how he really never gave him anything. You know, how he came into the high school program. He wasn't recruited there. He came on his own. Talk about, you know, Markel Fultz's journey to where he was then and where he's at nowadays. Most certainly, yeah. I mean, it's I'm so thankful uh, for all of the players I've had a chance to work with. And, but you know, as any coach will tell you, um, you know, you, you respect and care for every player. You treat every player fairly. You, you pour into every player, regardless of, of how good they are, how many minutes they play. Um, but it'd be impossible for a coach not to have a few favorites. And Martel will always be one of my favorite kids, um, most specifically because he was always a positive young man. He was always an energy giver. Um, he was a very selfless kid. Uh, he, he was very, very coachable. He was very respectful. Um, he just had a playful, fun personality about himself. You know, I mean, when you look at his high school career, he went from playing on the freshman team as a freshman, and three years later, he's a McDonald's and a Jordan All-American. I mean, so you want to talk about a very quick, meteoric rise, and it never tainted him. He was the same jovial, fun, respectful kid when he was a McDonald's All-American as he was before he had any of those those accolades. So uh, that was one of the reasons that I've, I've always really loved Markel. And I also love that he decided to take an unconventional approach in college and he went out to Washington. You know, mm-hmm. he was being recruited by all of the major blue chip uh, um, programs in college basketball. And he chose to do something a little bit different than others. And that was all stemmed from loyalty. Uh, one of the assistant coaches at the time at Washington, a guy named Raphael Chilius, uh, who's a good friend of mine. I mean, he put in so much work to cross the country. I mean, you're talking about Washington State to Washington, D.C. You know, that's 3,000 miles away. And he spent so many hours in our gym recruiting Markel, building a relationship. You know, they were one of the first big programs to really notice Markel, Markel's upside and talent. And uh, I love the fact that Markel went there because it certainly showed some loyalty. He basically said, look, you guys noticed something in me before anyone else did. And even when all the big dogs came around, you never stopped showing me that you wanted me at Washington and you never stopped showing me that you cared. And I believe that that relationship was the reason he went there. Uh, and then certainly, you know, was, uh, you know, made a splash in the NBA initially and then had some, some injury problems, you know? So you want to talk about the, the ups and downs of this young man's career. He's seen the very low of the lows and he's seen the very highs of the highs. And he still maintains a consistently positive attitude. And, you know, one thing I'll say, uh, you know, he's 19 years old, he's in the NBA, and then he has people, you know, these talking heads that are on all of these sports center shows, mm-hmm. you know, quest- questioning his work ethic, questioning his mindset, um, because they don't think that anything's wrong with him physically. And mm-hmm. uh, so please note, I mean, these guys don't have a fraction of the expertise that you have to even make that type of assessment. These guys know nothing about the human body or mechanics or, or performance. They're just going off something that they see maybe from a cell phone uh, video that was posted online. And so now you've got all of these people heavily scrutinizing this young man and they don't know any of the details. And I think he handled that as well as one could. He handled it with class. Uh, and I'm, I'm happy to see him back and healthy and, and playing well. I mean, um, like he's getting back to where, he's capable of playing. And, and to me, that's just a, 
the bow tie on a cool story. Mm-hmm. You know, that he, he started low, he goes high, he goes low, he goes high, he goes low. And now he happens to be on a high and I'm, I'm sure something else will come up um, that, that proves to be uh, some adversity or a challenge in his career, but I know he'll be able to tackle it because he's just, he's such a good young man. How hard was that for you being so close to him when he was going through those down moments and pretty much everybody in the sports media world was pointing their finger at him? How how difficult was that for you and you know, Coach Jones and people who knew knew him closely? Well, I, I think, I mean, Coach Jones probably more specifically and, and his immediate family. I mean, I, I just feel bad for those folks. I mean, I, I don't have any dog in the in the race. I mean, I'll, I'll always be thankful for my time with Markel. I'll always think he's one of my my favorite kids I've ever worked with. And yeah, you, you just feel bad when you see these things. You, you want to just kind of stand up on the rooftop and scream, you know, like you guys have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> right, but, right. And of course that never does anything. And, 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 you know, trying to argue with people on social media is a pretty futile point as well. Right. So really it's just a matter of, I just keep thinking to myself, you know, Markel, just keep your circle close, keep believing in yourself Try to disregard all these distractions and ignore all these naysayers and just do the best that you can, man. And I have no doubt you'll get back on top at some point. So um, thankfully, I, you know, he doesn't need my well wishes because, <laughs> you know, he's going to be a strong kid regardless. Yeah, when, when those types of things happen, it's but but I also recognize and, and I'm sure Markel would be the first to say it. You know, that's part of the responsibility of being famous and being a professional athlete. You know, if. If you're going to be open to receiving all the accolades and praise when things go well, then you have to be strong enough to take the discouraging comments and the, the criticism when people give it to you. And, you know, I, I say that lightly. I, I don't watch much stuff on sports anymore because I find most of it is just people screaming at each other and intentionally arguing over stupid points just to get people to watch. And I do think the vast majority of the people on those shows have absolutely zero expertise in talking about the things that they talk about. But I also understand that I'm not saying that to diminish them. That's their job. They have every right to pursue that. And if ESPN was, you know, paying me $10 million a year, (laughs) I might think, I might think about doing it as well. (laughs) So they're just doing their job. But, you know, when you have some of these guys that have never played basketball, um, never coached basketball, don't know anything about the human body, when they start commenting on things like that, I find it a little bit disheartening. You know, if they want to talk about trade rumors or conversations they had with somebody signing a new contract or they interviewed a coach and the coach said this about the team's losing streak, that's totally fine. But when they start throwing in their two cents on things that they really don't have an expertise in, especially when that's misinformation, I just find it somewhat disheartening. So I'm so glad that Markel was able to to rise above all of that and, and still come out stronger on the other end. You mentioned a second ago about how, you know, taking the players, taking the Twitter and stuff like that. And one of your close friends, you know, Kevin Durant, he goes back and forth with people all the time on Twitter. When you see KD going back and forth with Twitter, do you think of any of the stories that you could share just about Kevin as a person? Well, I mean, uh, Kevin's a grown man and he can certainly make all of his own decisions. And I, I think generally speaking, uh, over the course of his life of being in the limelight, uh, he has a great track record of making great decisions. But yes, uh, and it's easy for me to say because I'm not involved in the day-to-day, but anytime he does get into one of those Twitter feuds, you know, I just kind of smile and shake my head because I, <laughs> I realize that he might as well just save his breath. That it's not going to do any good. And, you know, the, the other part that I think is 
it's hard to grasp is, you know, at the level of fame that Kevin has, he may sometimes forget that when he has a little Twitter feed like that, it then becomes national news or mm-hmm. public knowledge. Whereas right. if, if you and I decide to have a little Twitter debate, not many people are going to know about it, you know, uh, unless a couple of people happen to follow both of us and they bring it up, you know, <laughs> so, so guys like you and I are, are rather fortunate that we can live somewhat anonymous lives and do those types of things and that, that you and I can make mistakes and, and many times no one will ever know about them. But when you're as famous as a Kevin Durant or a Markel Fultz, any mistake you make. I mean, if you, if you get an offender dinner in a grocery store parking lot, <laughs> that's going to make the evening news because right. you're Kevin Durant. And that, that's a whole new level of pressure. And, you know, so it's, it's easy for me to sit here and say, you know, Kevin, you probably shouldn't be getting in those Twitter feuds. Um, but, you know, he's his own man and he does what he believes is right. And, and I'll always support anyone for doing that. You know, same thing as I mentioned, the, the, the talking heads on ESPN, uh, I choose not to listen to them, and I don't agree with a lot of what they say, but they have every right to do that and pursue the, you know, a job that they love. And, and, and I do think most of them are doing their best at what they do. So I don't have any problem with that whatsoever. Uh, I just choose uh, to not acknowledge most of it. And same thing on Twitter. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's uh, it, when, when people are getting in those types of arguments, you know, anytime someone's getting in some kind of a social disagreement with me, if they're being respectful and professional and we can actually have a legitimate debate or difference of opinion, I think that is a great thing. I think that's how each of us grows and improves is by being willing to listen to other people's perspectives and vantage points. And sometimes it'll get us to change our mind. Sometimes it'll strengthen our own convictions. But I do being very, I believe in being very open to those types of debates. Uh, as soon as somebody starts to go off the rails and is disrespectful or they're simply too hard-headed to listen, uh, then I usually just say, you know, let's just agree to disagree and, and wow. respectfully move on. Right. I mean, it's, it's never never worth name-calling or using foul language or anything like that. That's just, that's just lowering yourself. I changed my mind on Kevin Durant as a person when I got a chance to meet him when he was at OKC. Um, I had the opportunity in Houston uh, when I was a head strength coach for Houston Baptist University. I trained DJ Augustine for four years. And when DJ got traded to OKC, I got a chance to meet Kevin. He was the nicest guy ever. I mean, he he gave my son the time, I think was three years old. He took pictures with my son, gave him autograph uh, shoes. I mean, he was the nicest dude ever. So if anybody ever had anything shitty to say about Kevin, they just wrong. Yeah, oh, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm with you on that. And, and this is what I find to be so fascinating because, you know, I mean, I've known Kevin since he was 15 years old and every interaction I've ever had with him in person is always incredibly positive. Uh, in fact, and I see him maybe once or twice a year, just at random things. And anytime I see him, the very first question he always asks me is how my kids are doing. I mean, he's, he's a good guy, but there's lots of good people out there that are fallible and are going to make mistakes that are Mm going to say something they probably shouldn't say. I mean, I, I'm, I'm living proof of that. I've made more than my share of mistakes. And, but as we just said before, mine aren't highlighted on, you know, national news programs or aren't viral on, on social media. And the hardest part I think for people to realize is if you take somebody like Payde, who let's say after a game, uh, he, he's signing autographs for people and he signs 99 autographs in a row. And then the team bus has to leave and he doesn't sign that hundredth one. 
that hundredth person usually feels like they were cheated or thinks Kevin's not a good guy because he didn't sign this for my son. And they take this little snapshot and then they make their own judgment. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if, if, if Katie was, was with his, his family and he was out to dinner and 50 people come up and interrupt his dinner and ask for a picture and he smiles politely and, and takes a picture. And then when you're number 51, he's like, look, man, I'm just trying to have dinner with my family. I, I don't want to do a picture right now. Most people would think he's a bad guy or that he's a jerk for doing that. And it's, it's almost if you're at that level, you simply can't win. That no matter what you do, somebody's going to feel like you're not, you're like, you owe them something and you're supposed to be doing something for them. And that's just a completely unfair standard for anyone to live up to. And, you know, people, people rag on Kevin for his decision to go to Golden State. Uh, I actually, I support the decision, not the actual decision but I support the fact that I really believe he did what he thought was best for himself, his career and his family, that he blocked out what everyone else was saying. And he talked to his inner circle and he said, I believe this is best for me. And he knew that making that decision, he was going to catch a lot of flack for it. And a lot of people were going to come down hard on him and he still did it anyway. And to me, that speaks volumes of his character, of how resolute he is, that he's willing to make decisions and he doesn't care if people criticize it because he wants to do what he believes is best. And uh, I, have, I have so much respect for someone that does that. I think many people, if, you were, if your entire life was in the spotlight, uh, you'd be hesitant to make decisions that were going to cause a lot of criticism of yourself. So I'll, I'll always have nothing but love and respect for KD and, and the, the decisions he makes. My next and last player that I know that you've worked with and you have a super, super personal relationship with is a guy that you mentioned in, in your book. There's a phrase you, you mentioned that has a, a walk-on mentality. He resonates with me because he was one of my favorite players while he's in college, number one. And number two, he's Nigerian because I'm Nigerian. So anybody that's an athlete out there that's doing positive things in the community and that's also Nigerian, like I'm automatically gravitated toward them. He was my favorite player when he played in college at Indiana. All my kids who was at Houston Baptist knew I used to rave about him being the best defensive player. They used to laugh at me. But Victor Oladipo is like one of my favorite players ever. And you've actually had a chance to work with him and you know a lot about him and his singing coming out, winning the mass singer and all that kind of stuff. Talk about this Victor Oladipo as a person and some of those things that you know about him that the world doesn't know. Yeah, well, you know, I, Victor, I could almost everything that I just said about Markel and just said about Kevin, I could probably combine those two things and it would all be equally true of Victor. I mean, what a, what a remarkable young man. Um, his journey is very similar to Markel's. You know, he started off high school, uh, very unheralded. Nobody knew who he was. The next thing you know, he's, he's earned his way into being one of the best players at DeMassa. And then people question whether or not he's good enough to play at Indiana. And then he goes there and blows the socks off of everyone. And then he goes to the NBA and starts having a great career. And then, of course, he's just now coming back from a, a really devastating injury. You know, so he's had his ups and downs. Had that big shot the other week. Sending oh, overtime. absolutely. <laughs> oh, without question. And he, he still has that, that same mentality. I think one of the things that I like about all three of those guys, Markel, KD, and Victor, um, they – they take their craft very seriously. Mm. All three of those guys want to be the best basketball players they can be, but they don't take themselves that serious. 
You know, they, they have, they still have a playful attitude. They, they still joke around and goof around and, and they step outside of the basketball world to explore different interests and things that they like. You know, they're, uh, th- that's one thing that, you know, I always found interesting about a guy like Kobe was during his actual playing career, he appeared to be very singular minded. He appeared to really only focus on basketball outside of his family, of course, but I just mean professionally. He really, all he did was focus on basketball and winning. And that's why I thought it was so refreshing that once he retired, he showed all of these other interests, you know, um, you know, with the children's books and, and the podcasts for kids and, and the documentary and the, I mean, everything that he was doing once basketball was over, he showed that he had a wide variety of different interests and things that, that really lit him up and he was good at. And I thought that was so refreshing to see, um, because again, during his actual career, he appeared to have more singular focus, uh, whereas KD and Victor and Merkel, um, they appear to, to show that they've got some other things that they enjoy now. You know, I mean, KD uh, is, is a phenomenal investor. You know, he's, he's got his hands in a lot of entrepreneurial activities and he's, he's got his own media company. I mean, he's already starting to build an empire above and beyond basketball even though he still gives basketball his full attention, you know, when required. And so I love when, when somebody like Victor steps outside and decides to do some things a little bit differently and and try some things that, that I think most people quite honestly would be scared to even try. Uh, And it just speaks volumes to, you know, what a good guy he is and, and that he realizes that there's more to life than basketball but basketball is pretty darn important to me and I'm going to make sure I give it my best. What did you say to yourself when you saw Victor on the mass singer? Oh yeah. I mean, I, I just couldn't even believe it. Like that's just, <laughs> it's just crazy, but, but I love that, you know, and the reason I love it is when you take a risk like that for guys in his position, the downside is much, is much higher than the upside. Like the, the potential embarrassment or criticism that you could get uh, is highly more probable than any additional accolades or praise that you're going to get. And yet he did it anyway because it was something he wanted to do. And I just think that is is so awesome. I mean, you know, it's it's something I try to to ask myself all of the time. You know, do I do I make decisions based on my own values, um, my my own desires, and so forth, or do I make them based on what other people will think of me? And as I've gotten older, uh, I feel very confident in the fact that I make many of my decisions now just based on my own value system, my own principles. Uh, and I, I don't worry too much about what other people think, but 20 years ago, that was the exact opposite. I would right. say most decisions I made were based on what people think. And especially with social media, you know, where everybody plays a comparison game and, and everybody sees what you've got going on. I think that can make it more challenging, but the older I get, the more secure I am and who I am and what I believe. And I'm happy to stand by that and not really worry too much about what other people think. I'm knowing one part of your book that you mentioned, like there were some businesses that had opportunity to acquire other businesses, but that closed minded thinking that I think you referred to as uh, close the store methods. What are some of those type of closed store methods you've seen personally with players or uh, corporations that you've worked with? Well, I think the the closed mindedness comes from a few different things. One, uh, I think it comes from kind of a know-it-all mentality. Like, I already know everything that there is to know, so nobody's going to teach me anything else. Uh, that's on one end. And, and I do think that's rather unconscious. I and mean, I don't think anyone really believes they know everything, mm-hmm. but they kind of put on this front, once again, 
to try to impress other people because mm-hmm. they want other people to think they know everything. And it's like, well, if I, if I ask for help or I get a coach, then everyone's going to know that I don't know everything. And that makes me look bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then the, and that, that really goes hand in hand with just fear and you're worried about perception and what other people think. So uh, as I mentioned uh, at the start of our conversation, one of the things that makes elite performers elite performers is they're always finding ways to get better and they're always looking for coaching or teaching or someone that can help them improve their craft. I know one thing that I love about you when you speak, I know when you're speak, you're speaking not only for passion, but you're also speaking from personal experience. And as somebody who's been, is currently a strength and conditioning coach, performance coach, I, mean, I have so many stories of where I was at 15 years ago, five years ago, and even five days ago, and they're all different. I'm just so happy about that and just so happy to hear those things. And a couple more things, I'm going to wrap up with you here on, on the end. I know there are some things that you mentioned in your book about how general managers may hit you up, ask you about different things, about players, et cetera. What's one of the craziest things that you heard a general manager ask you or an executive ask you about a player? I think one of the neatest things that they, they asked and, and – you know, what's kind of funny is I said that to someone the other day and they're like, Alan, who says the word neat anymore? And it's like, well, I do. I still think it's a good word. So yeah, I'm going to say one of the neatest things that someone asked me was uh, a general manager asked me, and this was before I even had children at the time. Right now I have, I have twin sons that'll be 10 in March and I have a daughter that will be eight. Uh, But at the time I, I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. And he said, Alan, if you had a daughter, would you let this player date your daughter? Mm. And I just thought it was a neat way to ask it because it was basically a roundabout way of saying, do you think he's a good guy? Does he have my character? Do you trust him? I mean, as any father will tell you that has a daughter, you know, they're probably very protective of their daughter and they would only want someone that's a good person to date their daughter. So I just thought that was a a cool way of asking instead of just saying, you know, Hey, Alan, is he a good guy? Does he have high character? He really cut to it because I didn't even hesitate. And I said, oh, absolutely. And then we had kind of a good chuckle because I was like, you know, I don't have any kids, right? And, <laughs> and we had a good laugh. But but, but my, my gut reaction was, yes, if I had a daughter, this is the type of young man I would want to date my daughter because he is a good, good kid. And uh, I just thought was that that was a really cool way uh, of asking. And, and another general manager asked something. This was more on the basketball side. Uh, he said, if... if if this player, and I won't say his name, if he ever walked by a ball rack on the court, would he take one off and start dribbling it? Mm. And I had to pause for a second. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. And that was his way of asking, does this guy love to play the game? Is he a gym rat? You know, Because a real gym rat who loves the game of basketball, like a Victor or a KD or a Markel, they can never walk by a ball and not start bouncing it. They can't ever walk by a hoop and not throw up a couple of shots. And he just wanted to know, because when you get to that level, they want players that are so committed and, and so into the game and, and into their development that they don't, they don't want someone that could just walk by a ball and not pick it up. I know that you just mentioned your kids. I see on your social media page that you take them everywhere you, you can, when often as you can, going to behind-the-scenes, exclusive basketball games, meeting players, coaches. When I get a chance to take my son on a team bus or a team plane or shoot around, just know he just loves it. What's that process been like for you and just sharing those kind of moments with your children when you're at these events and meeting these type of people? Uh, well, it's one of my favorite things to do as a father. And, you know, my children know that, 
that I don't push them into anything. You know, I'm so thankful that I found something that I love very much, the sport of basketball and, and coaching. Um, and I just want them to find something that they love as much as what I found that I love. And I just like having those experiences with them. Um, I'm a big believer that when I can take them around positive people, you know, high performers, people that do things the right way for the right reasons, uh, some of that's going to continue to rub off on my kids. And, and I also know that as a father and um, even as a coach, it's that old adage that it takes a village. Uh, you know, I'm constantly trying to model behavior for my children so that they'll grow up and be respectful, uh, self-aware, have high emotional intelligence, you know, to, to be high character. But, but being able to model that personally and be able to teach them is only one spoke of the wheel. Uh, I need to surround them with other people that do those same things to help make sure that that happens. And, you know, they're at an age now where they do like basketball and they like some of the stuff that I'm able to do. So it's, it's a cool experience for them. Uh, it's a great way for us to bond and share some time to make some memories together. Uh, but really it's, I just want to expose my children to as many different cool experiences as I can. And that will help them start to figure out what things that they, they enjoy most in life. Well, that's awesome, man. I, I appreciate you, Mr. Stein, coming on our No For Referees podcast today, sharing some of your stories about some of the great players you work with and how you approach your new chapter of your life, doing keynote speaking and, and corporate engagements. Please, everyone, go follow Mr. Stein at Alan Stein Jr. His book, Raise Your Game, High Performance Secrets from the Best of the Best, is out now. You can go find that everywhere. I just wanted to say thank you for coming on our show today, sir. Absolutely. My pleasure. It was so wonderful to connect with you and uh, I enjoyed it immensely. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Have a good day. All right. You as well. Thanks for listening to another episode of the No Referees podcast. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening to this show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on social media at No Referees Pod. To the next episode, we out.